It is great to see so many of you here on our campus today. Let me welcome everybody joining us online. If we haven't met, uh, my name's Adam, one of the pastors here. Glad you're here. Now, if you're just jumping in today as a guest for the first time, welcome. We're so honored you're here with us today. We just kicked off this series last week. So you haven't missed a lot so far. And what we're doing is we're gonna take 14 weeks to work our way through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, six, and seven. And it's helpful to remember that because if you're not here on a Sunday over the next, I guess, 13 weeks now, uh, we're just picking it up one week where we left off from the last. And so if you missed last week's message, it's posted on our website. It's on our YouTube channel. We also have a Vaughn Forrest Sermon audio podcast. And so you can just get the audio content um, wherever you get your podcast. And I mention all of that because I do want to encourage you in this series to not miss a message, even if you're not here on our campus, even if you miss out online each week, because my hope for you is that at the end of this series, not only are you going to have a better understanding of Jesus's most famous sermon, but also a better understanding of how to actually put it in to practice. So let's go. We got a lot to cover today. Let me give you the title of today's message. Hold your applause because it is three sermons in one. Now I know when you woke up this morning, you thought, I hope that the preacher gives us three sermons in one because let's do quick math. If you're usually here for 30 minutes, what does that add up to? 90, get comfortable. That is not what we're gonna do, all right? Don't leave, all right? I'm kidding. I'm not gonna preach three times as long. What I'm going to attempt to do by God's grace is do three kind of many sermons in one sermon. Now, why would we do that? Because when you're going through a passage of Scripture, one verse at a time, in this particular case, not necessarily a book, but a sermon, you don't necessarily have a title that then you teach what you're teaching. The text gives you the title. Now, as you're going to see in the verses we look at today, Matthew 5, 13 through 20, Jesus shifts gears a couple of times. So in these seven to eight verses, we really do have three sermons in one. So if you have a Bible, go to Matthew 5. If you don't, we'll put all the verses up here for you. And now would be a good time to remind you about those message notes inside your bulletin. So if you're here on our campus, go ahead and grab those. If you're joining us online, you can access them right here at vaughnforest.com. So let me tell you how this is gonna work. What we're gonna do is I've put three applications in your notes. And so they correspond with the three mini sermons in the one sermon. Anybody confused yet? Okay, all right. So how that'll work is we'll go through the passage. We'll point out some things. I'll get to the application. We'll go to the second one, second application, third one, third application. I do believe God has a lot that he wants to say to you this morning. So let's go. Let me give you the first kind of mini sermon inside this sermon. We're gonna talk about salt and light. And the reason why we're going to talk about salt and light, obviously, is because this is how the passage starts with Jesus talking about salt, talking about light, and talking about us. So let's look at the verses, and then we'll spend some time unpacking it. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, verse 14. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Therefore, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is talking about salt and Jesus is talking about light. I did not put this in your notes, but you might want to jot it down on the margin somewhere. Let's unpack these two terms, maybe give a little bit of clarity to what they are. So salt, what Jesus is saying here is that Christ followers are called to prevent the decay of sin upon this world. We'll talk more about that here in a second. When Jesus says we are light, he's telling us that Christ followers are called to illuminate the darkness 
from sin upon this world. So if you're in the first century and you're listening to Jesus teach this for the first time, you're totally tracking with Jesus. Salt is something everybody knew. Salt was something everybody used because they didn't have refrigerators. So meat was going to spoil. It would rot, and the salt is what prevented that decay. And this is something we're even familiar with now. We understand that even with you know, modern technology and refrigeration systems, that salt can help preserve meat. Salt can help meat actually kind of take on different forms. Let me see if I can unpack this for you a second. Yesterday, our family, and if you're new to Law Forest, my wife Morgan, she's our kids minister. We have three boys. Sam is 13, Jacob is 11, Henry is seven. We made the grand pilgrimage to the Bucky's in Auburn. Have y'all done this yet? If you haven't, you need to go, all right? If you have not been to Bucky's in Auburn, it is worth the trip, and they didn't even pay me to say this, okay? So if you've never been to Bucky's, I don't know how best to describe it, but I'll give it a shot, okay? It's kind of like a quick trip gas station, met Costco, met Cracker Barrel, met Aldi, and then wherever you've been that you were like, man, those restrooms are awesome. You gotta throw that in there too, because not only are the restrooms awesome, there's actually artwork hanging up in the restrooms that you can purchase. I'm not sure how this works, but I've never seen somebody pass a few stalls, you know, take a picture off the wall, go pay for it, that's Bucky's. You can get wrapping paper, you can get a blanket, all with this little squirrel on it. I think it's a squirrel, no, it's a beaver. What am I saying, right? Because it's Bucky's, anyway. We're there at Bucky's yesterday, just taking this all in. Sea of humanity, right? And then lo and behold, we get to this section. I'm fairly certain it was hit with a heavenly light, angelic music in the background with every imaginable beef jerky you could ever think of. Unbelievable, right? So we're staring at this. How do you choose one? And somehow we eventually made it up, made, made up our minds. We got our beef jerky and we enjoyed eating it to the glory of God all the way back home. You understand beef jerky. Like there's some type of preservation process. I don't know how that works. But man, you could lose beef jerky for five years, find it in like a coat pocket, eat it, you'll be fine. Dentists may not be happy, but you'll be fine, all right? That's beef jerky. There's a preservation that's happening there. There's some salt that's being involved and everybody in the first century would have understood this. But see, what Jesus is trying to help us see is that part of being a Christ follower is that you are preventing decay. Now, sin is pervasive in this world, and we can't prevent all of the decay that sin has brought into this world, but we are called to be a preservative, to add some flavor. What does that mean? It means that sometimes, as Christ followers, we have to stand up to evil. You do know that evil doesn't just ever stop. Somebody has to stand up and stop it. Like lies don't ever just go, well, that's enough. We'll quit being lies. No, no. Somebody has to bring some truth to the lies to expose the lies for what they are. People who have no voice and who are oppressed, somebody's got to speak up for them. Somebody's got to stand up for them. And part of what we've been called to do as Christ followers is to be that salt, to speak up and to speak out and to bring some flavor and to prevent the decay that sin has brought into this world. But Jesus also says you gotta be light. And we understand what that means. That by the very definition, if you, if you have one light in a dark place, it is no longer dark. And part of what we've been called to do is to bring our light into dark places, not avoid dark places, not act like dark places don't exist, but to go into those dark places as a light. And Jesus says, we're called to this. 
let's see if we can unpack this even a little further. We'll understand this here in the South because we appreciate God's sport, college football. And we're in the spring, and you kind of saw your spring game. You're excited about the fall. We'll all get there together in a few months. But think about it this way. Being salt is like playing defense. We are stopping the decay. We're stopping the spread of evil. You know this about your football team. If you can't stop them from scoring, you're not going to win. And part of what it means to be a Christ follower is we got to play a little defense. We gotta stop the spread of evil. We gotta stand up for truth. We gotta stand up for the things that are good. We've gotta speak out for those who have no voice. But see, being light, it's like playing offense. We are spreading the truth of God's goodness, truth of his mercy, spreading his grace, and ultimately spreading the good news of the gospel message. Your team may be able to stop everybody. If they can't score, they're not gonna win. So it's not just enough to play good defense. We've also gotta be proactive, play a little offense that we take the good news of the gospel message into this world through our light, that we spread his mercy, that we spread his grace. So I wanna ask you a question, because I think this is worth considering this morning. Which one of these are you more prone to be, salt or light? And if you don't know, ask your friends or your spouse. They will tell you, okay? They will tell you. Which one are you more prone to be? I think all of us lean one way or the other. Some of us, a little salty in a good way. You don't mind speaking up. You don't mind seeing right and wrong. You don't mind stopping evil. You don't mind bringing truth. You don't mind exposing lies. You don't mind speaking up for somebody who needs a voice, and that's a good thing. And then some of you are light. Everywhere you go, you shine your light. You can walk into the most hopeless of situations. Students, some of you have this in school. Some of you have this at work. Some of you have this in your neighborhood. That everywhere you go, you bring hope and you bring grace and you bring mercy. And people who are far from God eventually look at you and go, what is wrong with you? You always seem to be positive and happy. And you're like, I'm not a positive or happy person. I've just met Jesus and he has asked me to shine my light. And you're a light in this world. And it's fantastic. But which one are you? More prone to salt more prone to light. But see, here's the challenge of this passage, and it's our first application for today that I would ask you to jot down. See, being a Christ follower means I don't lose my distinct differences as salt, and I don't shy away from shining my light. See, where sometimes we and our tendencies, our wiring, personality type, may see this as either or, I'm either salt or I'm light, Jesus makes it a both and. No, you're salt and light. They were actually called to be both. The part of being a Christ follower means you don't lose your distinct differences. Your life should look different than the world. There should be some saltiness to you, is what Jesus is saying. But it also means you don't shy away from shining your light. See, everybody has to come to a place in his or her life where they choose whether or not to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, and it is a personal decision. No one else can make that decision for you. Christianity is not a birthright. Christianity is not inherited. You have to make a personal decision. Your relationship with Jesus is a personal decision. Please don't miss this. It is never a private matter. You were never called to have a private faith. Your faith means you shine. You don't shy away from that. You shine your light. Is that gonna rub some people the wrong way sometimes? Sure. 
But is it going to point a lot of other people to Jesus? Absolutely. So don't shy away from shining your light and don't lose your distinct differences as salt. As Jesus is casting a vision for the type of people his followers would be, he says, you're going to be salt and you're going to be light. And then he shifts gears, okay? So let's shift gears with him and go to kind of the second little sermon inside our bigger sermon today. And Jesus is going to talk about the law. Now, again, let's kind of get in our first century mindset. If you're listening that day, and Jesus starts talking about the law, he has your attention. The law for the Hebrew people was the foundation of everything in their society, relationships, authority, the educational system, how they handled finances. Literally, there was nothing you could do in your life separate from the law. So when Jesus now shifts gears and starts talking about the law, he's going to have everyone's attention. So let's go to the passage and let's see where Jesus does this. Again, back in Matthew chapter five, this is verses 17 and 18. Look at what Jesus says. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Interesting. He starts with this statement that assumes that this notion was out there somehow. Because up until this point, no one has stood up and said, hey, you came to abolish the law and the prophets. That's not happened. Jesus is speaking to an understanding that exists in his audience. Now, who had started this rumor? It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We're going to talk more about them here in just a minute. But what they were trying to present Jesus as was someone who did not care about God's law. So Jesus is gonna start right away and go, listen, that's not true. I, I, I did not come here to ignore, Jesus uses a much stronger word, abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. So let's leave this up here and talk about it for a second because, again, Jesus is speaking in Hebrew. These are, these are Jews. They speak Hebrew. They're understanding this in Hebrew. And Jesus says, smallest letter or stroke. Some translations say jot or tittle. This is an exact reference to the Hebrew language. I'm not an expert in Hebrew, but I did take a few classes in seminary. It's a very difficult language because, first of all, you don't have letters. I mean, even if you're trying to learn Spanish, at least you've got letters that you recognize. In Hebrew, it's a bunch of symbols, and you don't read it from left to right. You read it from right to left. And in Hebrew, you can have these symbols that, that, that all kind of look the same, and that there's this one little letter, and, and the, the exact translation when Jesus says smallest letter is this word yod. It's kind of a fun word, like Yoda, but without the A, okay? The letter yod in the Hebrew alphabet is the smallest little letter, and the best way to understand it for us would be like an apostrophe. So if you add an apostrophe S to anything, that little apostrophe, that's what a yod looks like. And when you're reading Hebrew, you could see four letters. They look like symbols to us, but they really are letters. And, and you could see four words and they all look the same until further examination. You'll notice that that little yod is in a different place with each one of those words. And just simply moving that little yod not only changes the word, it changes the sentence. It changes the entire structure of what's being communicated. And this is the level of precision that Jesus is talking about this day. He's literally telling them, hey, every little yod, all of the things in God's law will ultimately be fulfilled and accomplished through me. So Jesus is making sure they are tracking with him. I'm not here to abolish God's law. I'm actually going to fulfill it. But it's interesting. Why did he have to say that? 
Why did he have to clarify that he was not there to abolish the law? Well, when it comes to Jesus and the law, I want you to understand that he was clarifying the differences between God's law and between some laws that the Pharisees had constructed. And here, in fact, here's the distinct difference. Jesus was exposing the Pharisees' 1,500 man-made laws. So let's unpack that for a second. You've got the Old Testament. Now, you've got the Old Testament. I mean, if you don't have a Bible with you right now, even if you don't own a Bible, you could get one. Now, if you don't own a Bible and you can't get one, let us know after the service and we'll give you one. We've got plenty of Bibles around here, okay? We take for granted the access that we have to the Bible. That hasn't been around for a long time, historically speaking. So if you're alive in the first century and you speak Hebrew, you don't have a Bible. The only Bible that exists is the Old Testament scrolls in the temple, and there were some copies that were then in some synagogues, so it could be decentralized to an extent. But you've never had access to God's Word. You've never had access to God's law. You just know that it matters. Well, what the Pharisees did is they came along and they added to God's law. It goes a little something like this. Sometimes people will refer to these as fence laws. So someone says, hey, whatever you do, don't get close to that. Well, here's how we make sure people don't get close to that. We build a fence around whatever that is. Well, we can't let them get close to the fence, so we gotta build another fence around that fence. And heaven forbid they make their way over the first fence, so you just keep adding fences. This is what they had done. They had added a bunch of laws that were supposed to keep people from disobeying God's laws. But see, here's the problem. The people didn't know the difference. See, here's the problem. They were then using those man-made laws to oppress people. And see, here's ultimately the greatest travesty of this. It was leaving people feeling like they were far from God and God didn't love them because they couldn't keep, quote unquote, God's laws, which weren't really God's laws at all. But this other group of people, the Pharisees, they had God's blessing because they could keep God's laws. And guess what Jesus was doing? He was exposing that entire paradigm for the lie that it was. Do you see why they wanted to kill him? This is what Jesus is doing. So just for fun, and just so you could kind of see a little bit of of what Jesus was going after that day, let me give you a little bit of some of the man-made laws that the Hebrew people at the time thought were actually from God. So Exodus 20.10 is from God. Look at what it says. It says not to work on the Sabbath. That's a pretty clear instruction from God's word. But here's what the Pharisees did. They created 39 types of prohibited work that if you did, in their mind, you were breaking God's law. But these aren't in the Bible. So let me, I just came up, I I didn't come up with these. I researched and found three. I just find these pretty interesting. Here's one of the man-made laws. You could not spit on the Sabbath because it would disturb the dirt and you would be guilty of plowing. There's a law. Now, it's not really a good idea to spit anytime. I mean, you probably could have gotten arrested if you spit during the pandemic, right? So it's probably a good idea to not spit. That's not a good habit. But you would get in really big trouble, fines, possibly arrest, because the Pharisees would say, that is the same as plowing the dirt. We saw your saliva hit it. We're gonna give you a fine. That's crazy. Yeah, that's what was happening, okay? Here's another one. You could not swat a fly on the Sabbath because you would be guilty of hunting. Covered in flies, one day a week, nothing you can do about it. They caught you swatting that fly. You're going down. Like, this is the type of life that these people were living, okay? And here's one that's real interesting. If if this upsets you ladies, send all of your emails to Chad. I didn't come up with this, all right? Chad's really good at handling those, all right? Here's what it says. A woman could not look at her reflection because she might see a gray hair and pluck it out, which would be doing work. Now, notice it doesn't say anything about men. 
So the men could look at the reflection, you know, gray hair in the beard, gray hair upstairs, pluck it out, no problem. So it's also sexist. So these are the types of rules. And everybody is living under this type of oppression. And Jesus is exposing these man-made laws for what they are. But sadly, there are still a lot of people who think if I can just meet this standard and keep all these rules and keep all these laws, somehow that will earn God's favor. We see that all the time here in the South this cultural Christianity that if, if you're just good enough and you do more good things than bad things and live your life by the good book, there's all kinds of phrases that when you get to the end of your life, if the good outweighs the bad, then you're gonna get into heaven. It's just as bad as what we're seeing with these man-made laws. And then kind of in a heartbreaking way, there are still some Hebrew people today on the earth who are still following these pharisaical laws because they believe truly that through their devotion, they will earn God's favor. So let me give you an example of this and we'll put this up here and I'll talk about it. And let me tell you why we're talking about this. I'm talking about this because I'm not trying to make fun of anyone or make light of anyone. This breaks my heart when I see this because it is an effort and it is a devotion that could be admired, but ultimately has nothing to do with one's salvation. So for those of you who maybe are listening to this later in the week, what I'm showing here is a picture and the sign here says Sabbath elevator. And then above it, there is some Hebrew and in Hebrew that says Shabbat because the word Shabbat is the way you say Sabbath in Hebrew. And I had never seen these signs before. I had never seen a Sabbath elevator before until we moved to New York City. I grew up in Atlanta, a major international city, but even there I had not seen this before. And then Morgan and I moved to New York City in 2007. We were there for four years, lived there for four years, still have a lot of great friends there. And it's a, a wonderful place to live, despite maybe all the things that you may have heard. And God's doing a great work there, despite maybe all the things that you may have heard. But I remember after living there for a few weeks, every time I would go into a public building in, in Manhattan, I would see one of these elevators because obviously in, in New York, everything goes up. There's not room to go out. So you're always on elevators. And, and I started researching and asking around, what is a Sabbath elevator? And what it is, is it's an elevator that on the Sabbath, on Saturdays, when you get in this elevator, it will automatically stop on every floor. It doesn't matter if there's five floors, 15 floors, or 50 floors. That elevator will stop on every floor. You don't have to push any of the buttons. And the reason why is because the belief there for those who are attempting to be devout is that if you push a button on an elevator, you're disrupting the flow of electricity, and that is considered work. And the same line as the Pharisees were using these man-made rules it's literally a system that you can see on full display in certain cities, not just here in America, but literally all over the world. And every time I saw well-intended individuals enter into one of these elevators on a Saturday, it broke my heart. Because it's a formal way of saying there are things you can do that will please God. And these are not laws that we find in God's word. So we have to make a really important distinction. And let me give you kind of a statement that I feel like reflects that distinction. And keeping all of, and here's the key phrase, God's laws. There's a difference between God's laws and these man-made laws. And it's in the keeping of all of God's laws that Jesus offers himself as the perfect sacrifice for sin. I've been surprised over the years how many believers miss this in their reading of scripture. So I don't, 
I don't want to speak down to anyone, but let's just make sure we're all on the same page. When you read through the four Gospels, Jesus is doing everything he can to expose man-made laws by the Pharisees. He will intentionally break them just to show they're not from God, while simultaneously keeping all of God's laws. See, sometimes you can read the New Testament and go, man, Jesus is a rebel. He's not keeping any laws. No, no, he's keeping a lot of laws. He's just keeping the right ones. He's keeping God's laws. And that matters because unless he keeps God's laws, he can't be the perfect sacrifice for sin. Now, we get later in the New Testament, and we get some really good insight into why this matters so much. And so let me give you one of those verses that gives us that insight. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Now, who is him? It's Jesus. So God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us. How can Paul rightly say that Jesus had no sin? Because he kept all of God's laws. And in keeping all of God's laws, presented himself as the perfect sacrifice. But see, God made him who had no sin, don't miss this, to be sin for us. To be sin for you. That when Jesus hung on the cross, he literally became sin in our place. That he embodied all sin, past sin, present sin, future sin. This is why when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed to God the Father, if there's any way you can take this cup from me, let's do that. It wasn't because Jesus feared death. It wasn't because Jesus feared a beating. Jesus was a man who went faithfully to the cross. What Jesus was talking about with God was he did not wanna have to face the reality of separation from God that he had always known perfect fellowship with. This is why when Jesus hung on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Answer, God can't have anything to do with sin. And Jesus became sin. Why does that matter to you? God doesn't forsake you when you sin because he forsook his son in your place as he embodied your sin. See, there's a lot happening there. But the second part of this verse is actually the good news. So God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, through a relationship with Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God, which is why when you experience salvation, Jesus took on your sin, he imputed his righteousness to you. God sees the perfection of his son, Jesus Christ, in you through a relationship that you have with Jesus. Incredible news. Now, what does that matter for us and what do I want you to jot down today? Second principle application for us as it pertains to the law. Being a Christ follower doesn't give me freedom to blatantly disobey God's law, but it does free me from the burden of obedience being the foundation of my relationship with God. Jot that down. I know it's kind of a longer thing. We'll leave it up here for a second, but let's unpack this. Obedience as the foundation of your relationship with God is a burden. And a lot of people try to make that the foundation of their relationship with God. But the foundation of you having a relationship with God isn't obedience, it's faith. Scripture is clear that it's by grace through faith that you're saved. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. The foundation of your relationship is saving faith in and through Jesus Christ. And that releases you of the burden of obedience being the foundation of your relationship. But please don't miss this. 
Being a Christ follower then doesn't mean you can just blatantly disobey God's law. That you can just disregard it altogether. In fact, what we're going to see as we move through the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus actually raises the standard and expectation for what it means to live under grace as opposed to living under the law. And so, yes, that's not the foundation of our relationship, but we are not called to then just blatantly disregard. The foundation of my relationship with God, being a relationship with Jesus Christ, means I have freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. And so Jesus is clear about his relationship with the law and what that looks like for us. And then in the third kind of mini sermon in our one sermon today, he's going to further unpack then what that actually means for us. And so the third thing we want to talk about today is the Christ follower in the law. So if, if Jesus's perfection in our place is what establishes then that relationship, what are the implications then for how we are supposed to live in light of this and what Jesus has done? So let's go back to the passage and we'll see how this concludes, starting in verse 19. Again, we're in Matthew chapter five. Jesus says, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a really interesting way to end this because he's kind of been taking a shot at the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, but now he says, unless your righteousness is actually better than theirs, you're not gonna get into heaven. Now this can seem contradictory to what Jesus has said so far, so let's spend a second unpacking this before I give you the application. So it can seem like Jesus is teaching salvation by works or salvation by obedience to the law. That's not what he's saying. He's actually setting up what he's trying to say through a comparison and contrasting of the Pharisees. Anytime you're reading in the New Testament and you're like, that doesn't fit. That doesn't fit what we've been talking about so far, and that doesn't fit what's after it. It was a common method in the Hebrew way of teaching and understanding things to throw these statements out to set up a point that you were about to make. And so clearly, Jesus isn't contradicting himself. He's not saying that a relationship with him is based on obedience to the law. He's not teaching salvation by works. He's actually pointing out how the Pharisees had been doing it wrong. And so here's what the Pharisees were doing. They were pursuing an external and formal obedience to the letter of the law, which puffed them up with pride. They were pursuing an appearance. They wanted everybody to think that they were doing it right, that they were following God's law, and you weren't. So that meant that they were right, and you were wrong, and it puffed them up with pride. And if I could, just for a minute, lovingly step on your toes for a second, there's still a lot of people that live their Christian life this way. It's all about the external. It's all about formal obedience. It's all about putting on your happy Christian face and going to church. I mean, you can fight the whole way to church. When that car pulls in the parking lot, everybody puts on that happy face. They tuck in their shirt. You come in and it's like, glory be to God. I'm just so grateful for how he's blessing my life, brother. It's all about external. And if that's you today, repent. It's not what God's after. It's not why Jesus came to the cross. And all it's doing is puffing you up with pride. It's not about the external. It's not about how you can make everybody else think. That is not the pursuit of a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Pharisees were getting it wrong. And for far too many of us, 
we can be Pharisees today as well. We're modern day Pharisees making the exact same mistake. So what is Jesus after? He's after an internal motivation that pursues righteousness in both our mind and in our heart. It's a really easy question to answer, but the answer may not be one that you truthfully prefer. Are you pursuing Jesus with everything in you? Or is Jesus just one more thing you work into your schedule? Is it a heart pursuit? Is your mind focused on the things of this world? If it is, you will face anxiety, trouble, worry, and despair. Or is your mind pursuing the things of God? What have you allowed into your mind this week? What does your heart's pursuit look like this week? Can I tell you what Jesus is after? He's after that. It doesn't matter what you're trying to show everybody else you're about. What is going on inside your heart? And Jesus is after that. And here's what's so amazing about God's word. And again, please don't take for granted the fact that you have God's word. We are now 2,000 years into church history. We have the Old Testament and we have the New Testament. And we can see how God has been so faithful to his plan for our redemption and salvation that he was even dropping some hints along the way in the Old Testament for what this would look like. How God's law and how this internal pursuit at a heart level would actually all come together. So let me take you to this little verse kind of tucked away in the book of Ezekiel. I love the book of Ezekiel. It's just a different kind of book. He was a different kind of guy, and I, and I like that. Hundreds of years before Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, this is Ezekiel. He's prophesying. God is speaking through Ezekiel. Look what God says. God says, I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you walk in my statutes and are careful and follow my ordinances. Do you know what God is saying through Ezekiel? There's gonna come a time in the future where God says, I'll put my spirit in my people. And when I put my spirit in my people, here's how you'll know my spirit is in my people. They'll walk in my statutes. They'll be careful to follow my ordinances. And see, if you've experienced salvation, you've experienced the truth of that promise that you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit indwells you, that God has placed his spirit within you. And it's because God has placed his spirit within you that you can walk in his statutes, that you can walk carefully in keeping his ways. And so let's kind of tie this all together with our third application for today. Being a Christ follower means I actively pursue righteousness in my life that is put into practice through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you see it? That we're called to pursue righteousness at a heart level. That we're called to focus our minds upon the things of God. But the way we put that into practice, church, isn't through our own effort. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit. Far too many of us are pursuing righteousness through independence. We think we can do it on our own. We think if we would just get our act together and get a little more discipline that we could actually live this Christian life. Hey, if nobody's told you lately, it's impossible for you to live the Christian life. The only person who ever lived the Christian life was named Jesus. They hung him on a cross. See, Jesus doesn't expect you to live the Christian life. He already did that in your place. But do you know what he asked you to do? Pursue righteousness and then let the helper, the Holy Spirit, be the strength 
that works in and through you. See, you can't do this on your own. And until you get to a place where you move from independence to utter dependence, might I even suggest desperation, where you say, absent from the power of the Holy Spirit, my life will not be lived in a way that others would see light. My life will not be lived in a way where I bring salt and push back against the pervasive nature of sin in this world. See, God has not called you to something that he has not also given you the fuel for. And for many of us today, in a moment of honesty, we would say, I'm running on empty. And might I suggest, it's because you're trying to do it in your own strength. Will you bow your head with me this morning? And God, as we come to you in prayer, we just confess that. Just this propensity that we all have towards independence we're going to do it, that we're going to get it right. And God, we confess that. That we want to have a heart that pursues you while being fueled by you. And so, Lord, we repent of our own effort and just simply offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, asking that you would empower us with your Holy Spirit, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would not live in our own strength, but we would live in yours. And Lord, we do so in a way where our hearts pursue your ways, where you would align our hearts with your word, that, that, that what drives your heart is what drives our heart. And then Lord, as, as we do that through the power of the Holy Spirit, will you use us to be the salt that this world so desperately needs, to shine a light in the dark places that are all around us, and to do it in a way where praise and glory is brought to you. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for meeting with us today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.